Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. Previously, this week, we begin our series on what Jesus had to say about marriage and sexuality. And I am here to offer you my literal months of experience in married life. Uh, I, am, I have logged the fewest hours as a married person among our teaching team. Um, yes, I've been married the least amount of time. Here since October, for those who, who don't know, but I do remember growing up in the church that marriage was stressed a lot. Marriage and family building was the assumed norm growing up. And as I started preparing for the sermon, I just kind of had to ask the question, wait, why? Why has that been the case? Why has the church gotten this reputation as a family-building machine? Because the guy we're supposed to be basing this on, Ian, if you want to bring that next slide up. So Jesus was famously single. Um, Rich Velotas points this out, and I hope he'll be showing this Facebook status uh, this, this Valentine's Day as well. But he brings up that Jesus is supposed to be the embodiment of what it is to be truly human. Truly human, truly God, never married. And he spent his time not really building families, but asking his disciples to drop what they had going and follow him. And he spent his time healing the sick and feeding the hungry. So, okay, so Jesus himself didn't get married, but he talked about it a lot, right? Like, for all that we talk about the Christian family and the biblical standards of family building, Jesus must have talked about marriage a lot. Except, no. Um, I have here, if you'll go to the next slide, this is every word that Jesus ever said in the Gospels. Um... (laughs) I found someone who had put it in a PDF, and I just copied it. I deleted all the stuff from Acts and Revelation. So this is everything Jesus said. You probably recognize some of your life verses in there. Um, I control F searched for every mention Jesus makes of marriage. I searched for husbands, wives. They're in yellow. So you can probably spot a few there. They're a little faint. And I was, I'll I'll be honest, I was generous with this highlighting, okay? Jesus at one point just says, remember Lot's wife. And I said, well, he said wife. That's close enough. I highlighted that one too. I highlighted when he talks about the parable of the wedding feast. That's not really about marriage, but it's talking about a wedding. So I highlighted that one too. This is everything Jesus said on marriage, as far as I know. Just for contrast, here's every time Jesus mentions money. Every time Jesus mentions the poor, the needy, the wealthy. Every time Jesus mentions giving what we have. 
So there was a lot more to draw on for the previous series, is what I'm saying. Now, you probably noticed maybe like a few big yellow chunks where Jesus seems to be talking about marriage a lot. But again, those are sort of extended parables. Parables that use marriage as an illustrative device. Talking about the kingdom of God like a man who invited a whole town to his wedding feast. Or talking about the kingdom of God like ten virgins waiting with their candles for the bridegroom to arrive. So it seems... Now, I I do feel I have to mention, this isn't actual biblical scholarship. Um, This is just what I had time for. You could actually get yourself in a lot of trouble just ripping out the words of Jesus and and reading them completely devoid of context. But if we're just going to look at these 60 pages of Christ's words, it seems that whatever it's all about, it's not all about marriage. It seems that marriage is useful in that it illustrates what ought to be true in all of our relationships. What I mean is this, and if you take nothing else away, take this. As much as the church might tell you otherwise, marriage is not a finish line. It's more like the ultimate test of how you treat people in general. I'll say it again, marriage is not a finish line. It's the ultimate test of how you treat people in general. So any good marriage advice ought to be true, at least in part, to our general relationships with God and with one another. And the first point I want to make about marriage that Jesus seems to be getting at in this passage is that marriage is not about the bare minimum. If we go to that scripture, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's a loaded question, by the way. (laughs) Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, because they knew the law, why then, Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Not really what the Pharisees were looking for. Now, it's tempting, and I think my relationship to this verse growing up was just to kind of swoop in, get the quote-unquote biblical view on divorce, and get out of there, right? Just get what you need and leave. But the context here is important. Because the people pursuing Jesus are not 
battered women seeking to get out of abusive relationships to their husbands. These are a bunch of very privileged dudes asking if they can discard their wives when their wives no longer please them as a hypothetical thought experiment. And like any good teacher, I think Jesus says, wait, why do you need to know that? Why are you asking me that question? They're asking if they can discard their wives whenever and however they want. And they're not wrong, really, about the law of Moses. The law permits them to do so. They're within their legal rights. But marriage, as with all healthy relationships, is about more than what's technically legal. I think we can agree on that, right? Like, I've had plenty of bad friendships where the other friend did nothing illegal, but was still a bad friend. Marriage, as with all healthy relationships, is about more than the bare minimum. You bring up that next slide, Justin. There's a play by August Wilson called uh, Fences. This is from um, film production with Denzel Washington. And Fences is about a family that's falling apart. That is partly where, sorry, I just chuckled because I know that's partly where Augie got his name from August Wilson, um, who wrote this play. Yes, Fences is about a family falling apart. It's about a father who does, quote, in his eyes, everything right, but he fails to love. In it, it and his family calls him out for this. He's making enough money, he's providing for the family, but in one heartbreaking scene, his teenage son says, Dad, how come you never liked me? And rather than allow himself to be made vulnerable, the main character just comes right back at him in anger with that question, what law there is, say I got to like you. Don't you eat every day? Got a roof over your head, got clothes on your back. Why do you think that is? It's because it's my job, he says. It's my responsibility. A man is supposed to take care of his family. You live in my house, fill your belly with my food, but you're behind on my bed because you're my son. Not because I like you, because it's my duty to take care of you, because I owe you a responsibility. I ain't got to like you. this character is saying, it's not wrong to provide for your child, right? But it's not the duty of a father to only provide for their child. The duty of a father should go beyond duty. Friends, I'm here to tell you that God not only takes care of you, he not only loves you, God likes you. 
And if we are to treat others the way God treats us, we must go beyond the bare minimum of duty. Maybe things aren't this drastic in your life. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just that you've been gotten really transactional in your friendships. You've been really nickel and diming your friends for gas money. Or you've been behaving in such a way that you take advantage of your friends and they feel they need to nickel and dime you for gas money. We go beyond the minimum of duty. We don't give as little as we can and take as much. If we're to treat others the way God treats us, we should go beyond the minimum. Amen? We should go beyond the minimum because marriage is not the finish line. It's the ultimate test of how you treat people. So the second point I want to make about marriage is that it's not for everyone. Um, I didn't realize this the first time I read this, but the Pharisees actually back off after this initial answer, and the disciples butt in. Apparently what Jesus has said is actually so troublesome that the disciples are, are kind of doing a double take here. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replied, yep. <laughs> not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. I love this rhetorical device. I don't, I, I, if I were to name it, I think I'd call it the Jesus double down, when he admits to exactly what people are accusing him of. It's like, yes. Marriage is not for everyone. It's not for everyone, and the church should be a place where that's okay. It should be a radical place where that's okay. Guys, the early church thrived on aiding orphans and widows, not on churning out families. Again, Huge fan of marriage over here. In my literal months of experience, I recommend it. But it should not be a prerequisite. It should not be an assumed expectation or a ticking clock in the church. Marriage is not for everyone, and that's okay. Marriage is the ultimate test of how you treat people in general. Amen? The last point I want to make is that marriage is not an island. There's a piece of advice that... Uh, Gary gave to, to Julie and, and myself during our marriage counseling. And it was that the trajectory of marriage, if we're not careful, is toward security and isolation. It's not a structure that naturally reaches out. We have to do the active work as married people to reach out. We have to make that active decision. 
But speaking of people on the, in, on the outside, this is how we get to Unix. The moment you've all been waiting for, we're going to talk about Unix. Jesus continued, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. I know we've talked about this in uh, our Isaiah series similarly, but I'll just be as upfront as I can be about uh, the background to this. A eunuch, for those who do not know, is a man who has no testicles. Why was this a common enough thing for Jesus to reference? Why did we need a word for that? Well, uh, historically, men were made eunuchs, often if they served in the court, and often if they were put in charge of a king's harem of his wives and concubines. Logic being, a eunuch would be the safest person to have in charge of women belonging to the king. And we don't have time to go into all of that. <laughs> but, needless to say, a eunuch was about the farthest thing from good religious family building, as you can imagine. There are actual verses in the Old Testament forbidding eunuchs from entering the temple, from taking part in formal worship. These were sexual minorities. In a time, especially at this time, when establishing a line, establishing a family unit, was how you established your worth. Now, Jesus seems to be using the term here more loosely, just to describe people who voluntarily or involuntarily are leading celibate lives. But his use of the language is interesting. I don't think we should altogether ignore it. If nothing else, his use of this word reminds us that if our vision of the kingdom of God categorically excludes those on the fringes, then our vision is not big enough. I'll say that again. If our vision of the kingdom of God categorically excludes those on the fringes, then our vision is just not big enough. But I think it also speaks to a kind of work, kingdom work, that can uniquely be done by unmarried people in general. It actually makes me think about Brian Stevenson. Now, I've talked about this man before. Brian Stevenson is a civil rights lawyer. He spent much of his career advocating for prisoners on death row. Uh, he actually got his undergrad right here in town at Eastern University. Fun fact, as a plug to my wife's alma mater. But Brian Stevenson is a, is a civil rights lawyer, and um, if you watch the film uh, Just Mercy, that movie is about him. 
He spent much of his time advocating for prisoners on death row. Uh, if you go to the next slide here, Justin. This is a picture from 1993. Uh, he's pictured here with one of his more famous clients. This man uh, went by the name Johnny D. Johnny D was wrongly convicted of murder in 1988. And he spent six years on death row. And Stevenson was eventually able to free him. Free him from the discriminatory practices that had put him there in the first place. And he went on to found, Stevenson did, he went on to found the Equal Justice Initiative, whose lawyers, as of 2016 anyway, have saved 125 people from the death penalty. And in 2016 was part of a movement to push Supreme Court to not allow children to be convicted to life without parole, which is a thing that could have happened up until 2016. And they pushed the Supreme Court to not only pass this law, but to apply it retroactively, potentially affecting the cases of 2,300 people who had been on life sentences since childhood. We just sang a song about each child being a life that Jesus died to save. This is Jesus' work. This is Jesus' work. As you can imagine, yeah. No, 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 it's okay. You can go back to the, to that one. As you can imagine, uh, when you work with prisoners on death row, you do make a lot of enemies. You get a lot of threats. Stevenson is not anti-family. Here, he's actively working to reunite a man with his family. The husband is brought back with his wife, the father with his children. He's not anti-family, but he has stated on more than one occasion that the kind of work he does, entrenched in the racism of the court system, makes a personal life difficult. He's unmarried, 62 years old. But I think that singleness, it does allow him to continue his work with the fervor that he does. Just one more thing I want to say about Brian Stevenson. He uh, recently received $230,000 for a MacArthur Genius Grant, and he threw it all back into the Equal Justice Initiative to pay better wages for the lawyers who work there. In his singleness, Brian Stevenson's able to do Jesus' work in a way that he might not be able to do were he married with children. Now, I do not share this story to let married people off the hook of doing Jesus' work. And I do not share this story to stress out the single people. 
Like, marriage is not the only thing separating me from being, being Brian Stevenson. I share this story to let all of you know that God's best possible plan for you does not begin on the other side of marriage. It does not begin on the other side of whatever life milestone society has told you is the beginning of your real life. His best possible plan for you begins now. Amen? God's best possible plan begins now. Amen? Amen. He's using you. And that's the good news. That's the good news. That marriage is not this isolated finish line. It's not just a checkbox. It's not just a thing to achieve. Marriage should be a microcosm. The ultimate test of how we treat people in general. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.